So just tell me what comes to mind. America. Pluralism, diversity, opportunity. America. It's the greatest country, I will say that. And it could be even greater. America. Peril. These voices are the voices from investigators of the January 6th committee. They are all people of color. Some are immigrants or children of immigrants. Others are descendants of enslaved people. More than a quarter of the some 40 investigators on the January 6th committee were Black, South Asian, or Latino. So were three of the five leaders of the specialized investigative teams. For the first time, they talked to us. We went into this documentary with a hypothesis that the unusually robust representation of people of color was not an accident, nor was it just for show. In a nation where race has always been tied to democracy and both its aspirations and discontents, we theorized that the lived experience of legal investigators of color could have impacted their work on the committee in ways as profound as their training at Harvard Law School or career as military prosecutors would have. In fact, their mix of lived experience and professional legal experience would have been just what America needed at a moment like this. The January 6th committee's existence, like the day of the insurrection itself, became a focus of partisan politics and bitter accusations. Here's GOP Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I think at the heart of this recommendation by the Democrats is that they would like to continue to debate things that occurred in the past. Senate Republicans filibustered to block the formation of a bipartisan commission. Senate Democrats, including New York's Chuck Schumer, were furious. Shame on the Republican Party for trying to sweep the horrors of that day under the rug because they're afraid of Donald Trump. Former President Donald Trump, who lost the 2020 election and raised hundreds of millions of dollars after his defeat by claiming that he won, called the committee a political witch hunt. Republican members of Congress largely boycotted the committee, with then-House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy calling it a sham. You, you know it, and we predicted it back at the very beginning. This is a sham committee that's just politically driven by Speaker Pelosi. Then, on the eve of the January 6th committee's release of its report, a Republican committee released its own, which ignored the actions of former President Trump and focused only on Capitol Police preparedness. Here is GOP lawmaker Jim Jordan. Why wasn't there a proper, uh, proper security presence at the Capitol that day? They're not going to address that. They just want to be partisan. They just want to continue to attack the former president. The people who bear the weight of racial bias also do the most service to fix racial bias. Their counsel is often overlooked until things get too critical to ignore. That's arguably what happened with January 6, which is rooted in the rise of modern domestic extremism and political disinformation. This is an American story.
Let's start with how these investigators learned about the insurrection and decided to join the team. It is January 5th, 2021. Crowds are amassing in Washington, D.C. There was something in the air, even in the days preceding. We live on Capitol Hill, and my daughters were at Senate daycare. And the day before, the Senate daycare decided to um, shut down for the day. People who weren't necessarily in the Capitol Hill community already in the parks and the nannies were very much on alert, Mm -hmm. as well as many of the teachers at the Senate daycare. Most of them are black and they Mm -hmm. saw people that they weren't comfortable around. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was leading up to the day itself. That's Samia Dayananda, a fierce prosecutor who helped take down the notorious drug kingpin El Chapo. So it was, you know, going to Colombia multiple times, speaking with witnesses, flipping witnesses to become cooperating witnesses for the government. Her relaxed demeanor masks her steely determination. Soon enough, she would be called to take on the biggest challenge of her career. She was named senior investigative counsel to lead the team that would investigate the law enforcement and military response to January 6. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Her life began in the middle of Pennsylvania, near Penn State. Her mother was a professor there. Her father taught at Lock Haven University. Her sister called it Indian Amish because it's the (laughs) middle of nowhere. And here we were, we created like a subculture within that small town. She learned her parents' native tongue, Kannada, and started spending summers in India with her grandparents. Her identity as an Indian American was forming. And I think at age 10, I loved Nancy Drew. I loved Murder, She Wrote. I loved all these mysteries I liked to read. So this Nancy Drew and Murder, She Wrote seems like a little bit of a precursor to you becoming an investigator. If I look back now, how that shaped how I wanted to be in life in the sense of having a beginning and an end. And that's how those Nancy Drew books were, or Murder, She Wrote episodes. It's there's chapters mm-hmm. and there's a problem and you take several steps to then solve it. And I think that is, is how I approached being a prosecutor. Joining the team, she was grateful to be working again with people who had spent years as prosecutors. It was something she'd missed after she left the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office for the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. It's the evening of January 5th. In the tightly contested election of 2020, all eyes are turned to Georgia. The results will determine who controls the Senate. My nose is usually in something, and it was in uh, my laptop at the time because I was feverishly refreshing the screen to see the returns from Georgia. On the morning of January 6, while crowds were amassing in Washington, D.C., Robin Piguero was in Texas at his sister's home. He says he was filled with a sense of optimism. 
the runoff returns projected Democrats to win in Georgia. So there was a lot of optimism on my tiny laptop screen. And then a lot of pessimism. All of this horrendous news that's going on here in Washington, something that none of us ever expected we would see in the nation's capital. I just want to make it official right now. CNN cannot project that the Democrats uh, will be the majority in the uh, U.S. Senate. Robin and his family were skilled at finding opportunity amid America's conflicts over race, class, and national origin. My parents are immigrants. My mom came here from Ecuador, my dad from the Dominican Republic. They met in the U.S. Army and fell in love, you know, got married, had my sister and me all in 1980, you know, not long after the Supreme Court decided that people of two separate races, white and black, could marry. He was raised in the greater Miami area, in Hialeah. It's actually one of the most conservative cities in the country. Uh, Many Cuban Americans uh, are diehard Republicans. Um, And it's also a place where when you walk into a store, the first language they speak to you in is Spanish and not English. Robin's high school was predominantly Latino, under-resourced, and considered just shy of failing by the state. But that didn't stop him from excelling. He graduated first in his class and was also only the second student from his school to attend Harvard. Much like Samia, Robin fell in love with mystery stories. I liked, like, the Hardy Boys. Later, obviously, I would become a prosecutor trying to put pieces together in a case. So um, that probably played a role in that and, and where I ended up. He spent nearly a decade in Miami as a homicide prosecutor and held on to his creativity by writing a crime novel called With Prejudice. Eventually, he ended up on Capitol Hill, hired by Congressman Charles Rangel, the first black chairman of the powerful Ways and Means Committee. But on January 6, Robin watched an American first from his sister's house in Texas that was starkly disturbing. And I'm watching the first non-peaceful transfer of power in our history. His family peppered him with questions. They were shocked. They would ask me as a former congressional staffer about, like, well, you know, where is it that they're breaking into? And can they really reach the House floor? Can they really reach members of Congress or the vice president who is there? Five to 50 be advised. Capitol Police one advised they're trying to breach and get into the Capitol. The situation grows dire. Law enforcement is overwhelmed and unprepared. We have a breach of the Capitol! Breach of the Capitol! Little did Robin know on January 6th, he would eventually join Samia's team, the Blue Team, to investigate the failures of first responders and the military that day. I need Across the Potomac River in Alexandria, Virginia, former Air Force JAG prosecutor Brian Bonner is at home with his kids. I remember turning on the news going, well, what's going on? And, you know, at first you're like, oh, looks like there's a fight at the Capitol. Oh, okay, they'll, they'll square that away. But then you realize, wait, it's more than that. I turn on the TV like a lot of people, and then I'm just immersed in this event that's unfolding. And my brother, 
He's a special agent with the ATF, Bureau oh, of Alcohol, wow. Tobacco, and Firearms. So I call him up. I'm like, are you are you seeing all this? He's like, yeah. Like, I just talked to my, my folks. We've got a, a group that's been deployed down there to help. It's insane. By 2.11 p.m., the Capitol building is breached. Rioters call for the death of Vice President Mike Pence. Some GOP members, like Josh Hawley, who hours earlier egged on the insurrectionists, flee for their lives. Brian Bonner has bittersweet memories of Harlem in the 70s. There were deep wells of community and culture, plus economic stress and post-divorce tensions between his parents. Before moving to Norfolk, Virginia in his teens, he grew up on 135th Street and Broadway in what was then subsidized housing. So we were outdoor kids only because our project had a park in the back that was surrounded by a very large brick wall. So you had to be a tenant in the building in order to get outside, in order to get into that park. My friends and our, I sort of fancied ourselves the action kids. And so the big thing to do on Saturdays was watching Channel 5 Kung Fu Theater. And whatever was on Kung Fu Theater, everyone was watching. Because, of course, at 3 o'clock, when we all came outside again, we were all Kung Fu experts. Because we had just watched The Five Deadly Venoms, or The Kid with the Golden Arm. And all of us are practicing our martial arts, inventing our own sound effects while we do it. Brian moved to Virginia in his teens, which he credits with changing his trajectory. A guidance counselor who saw Brian's potential urged him to apply to UVA. He then joined the Air Force, where he became a JAG, a judge advocate or military prosecutor. That job also helped him mend a torn relationship with his dad. As I grew older, we started to become close, and he often watched JAG. <laughs> and he would call me, and he would say, Brian, I just finished watching JAG. And he would tell me about the antics of, I think the main character's name was Harm, and how he had stop some terrorists from stealing the original version of the Constitution and, you know, a terrorist plot. And he would ask me if that was my, what was my day like? Like, no, Dad, <clears throat> that's not what my day was like. Brian applied his legal skills at the Department of Homeland Security. Soon he would have the chance to live out his childhood dream of being an action hero to defend his country when he was tapped to join Samia and Robin. There's a second former JAG on the investigative team, Marcus Childress, the breakout star of the January 6th primetime hearings. Marcus came a long way from the introverted boy who was born on Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia. I lived with my grandmother. My dad was in the military, but he was still pursuing his education. My mom was in nursing school. Marcus revered his grandmother and family. My aunt likes to joke that when she was a freshman at Norfolk State University, she would push me around in the crib, around campus, with all of her girlfriends who still know me to this day as, like, mm -hmm. little Marcus. Little Marcus recalls watching Perry Mason, Matlock, and C-SPAN with his grandmother. She was big into, like, politics. Not even just, like, the Perry Mason, but, like, C-SPAN. Yeah. We're going to watch hearings. It was almost like sports play-by-play -play with her, where she mm -hmm. would comment on what was being said or the bill that was being introduced or how that member was paraphrasing the legislative need for it. 
On the DC Metro one evening, Marcus receives a phone call that changes the trajectory of his life. His beloved grandmother Seal has passed away. She once dreamed of having a lawyer in the family. Marcus turns towards the law and gets into American University. He found a mentor in Professor Raskin. Yes, that Raskin. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. So law school was the first time where I was like reading and learning about politics and philosophy and the Constitution and how the Declaration of Independence tied into the Constitution and things of that nature. And Mr. Raskin was just like the most incredible storyteller oh, you could have. I mean, it wasn't like a lecture. And you can ask my wife this. Like, I would come home and just launch into what Professor Raskin had just taught us. After law school, Marcus became a star as a JAG, a prosecuting lawyer in the military, against his dad's wishes. Uh, he said, I did not serve in the military for my son to have to serve in the military. <laughs> and I think he and he meant he meant to like, yeah. I want you to be a free entrepreneur right. or whatever. Like I served in the military so you don't have to. I looked at it as and I still looked at it, my time in the military as like a sign of ultimate respect for my dad. Eventually, Marcus switched to private practice in May 2019, settling down in the D.C. region. He decided to watch the counting of Electoral College votes on January 6th live and got on the phone with another lawyer whose husband was one of the floor parliamentarians in the chamber that day for the House of Representatives. We're watching this. Like, let's get some popcorn and see how um, these congressmen are going to argue this objection. And I remember her saying, I have to get off. Like, immediately rushing mm-hmm. off. I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, she just, like, literally just abruptly left. And this is before mm-hmm. we see coverage of, like, violence or anything. Right, but she She knew. got a call yep, got from a her call. Hu- from her husband. Yeah. I was like, um... And then I went out in the living room with my wife, because COVID times, right? And, like, mm-hmm. something going on at the Capitol. And so we just watched the coverage literally from probably, what, about a little after 1 o'clock that day through the entire evening. After a day of incendiary rhetoric, attackers held a Confederate flag aloft in the U.S. Capitol. This was a first, a feat not even accomplished during the Civil War. Investigators like Samia, Brian, and Marcus worked punishing hours for months to uncover what systems failed our national security and the peaceful transition of power on January 6th. They, along with others, paid a deep personal price, even though their investigation led to primetime hearings seen by tens of millions of Americans, plus a 752-page book, The January 6th Report. D.C. native Candace Phoenix played an unusual set of roles and acted as both the den mother and the taskmaster for the group. Here's her colleague, Marcus. Candace is easily one of the smartest attorneys I've ever met before in my life. I thought of Candace as the oversight encyclopedia. Candace grew up in D.C. when it was truly Chocolate City. I started out in D.C. public schools at a mostly black public school that was not particularly uh, well off financially. Her mom, like so many mothers in working class communities of color, put a lot of time and strategy into finding the best educational opportunities for her daughters. 
It was a wonderful academic experience, but it was a, a, a shock of a social experience to move from a not very wealthy public black school in southwest D.C. Mm-hmm. to a very rich, very white private school in Virginia where we were nowhere near the normal income bracket of the folks who were there. Mm-hmm. And to have this sense of lack of belonging. I remember that year triggering an identity crisis for me. I didn't have the words for it at the time. Still, Candace excelled. She rose to the greatest heights, often being one of the few Black women in the room. Candace helped run President Trump's second impeachment hearing before being named senior counsel and senior advisor for the January 6th investigation. The task to set up the investigative committee was daunting. There were all sorts of things like personnel manuals and contracts and managing our document discovery management system. Candace also pointed out that the structure of the committee didn't give them as much legal leverage as they would have liked, as they weren't set up as a criminal investigation. We were a committee that was made up of currently sitting politicians. The 9-11 Commission was not. We were a committee that had a time limit to a very short time limit to what we could do, which was not a constraint. I think that was on the 9-11 Commission. They may have had a time limit, but it was not like you're going to get gaveled out of here in a year and a half and and you're going to get pushed Mm -hmm. out the door. Candace's career to date was largely spent at what she calls her dream job in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. And all of that changed when Trump won and took office. And we had opposing counsel in some of our cases just tell us a couple of days after the election, come on, guys, you know we're just going to wait you out. January's coming and none of these cases are going anywhere. She lasted two years. But I couldn't help but feel like the impetus of me becoming a civil rights lawyer was just not being fulfilled during that time. And I went to the Hill to get in the game and to be a part of the battle and the fight. Candace landed at Congressman Raskin's Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, where she ran point on President Trump's second impeachment. I always told myself we were were impeaching for history, Mm -hmm. not for the outcome. The question is on the article of impeachment. Senators... How say you? Is the respondent Donald John Trump guilty or not guilty? A roll call vote is required and the clerk will call the roll. It was January 13th, 2021, a week after the insurrection, one week before President Trump's term was over and the beginning of Candace's mental marathon. She was running both the January 6th committee and the second impeachment for Congressman Raskin at the same time. Each of our investigators was handpicked. Robin Piguero got an email from Chief Investigative Counsel Tim Heafy asking if he would be interested. He said, um, Congressman Aguilar, Pete Aguilar, recommended you. But I had never met the congressman before, so I was befuddled by that. Marcus's phone rings. 
got a call in August of 2021 asking if I was interested in being an investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. I actually thought it was a prank. I remember thinking, like, this isn't real. Um, And then kind of having, like, a freak-out moment of seriously and then in a moment of excitement of being able to um, investigate that day and that crime. There's 9-11. I remember where I was on 9-11. I remember where I was on January 6th. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having the opportunity to be able to investigate it was a no-brainer. Brian got a call, too. In my head... I have one side of my brain that's saying, you don't want any parts of that. Why would you do that? That's crazy. Don't do that. And the other part of my brain saying, are you kidding? This is a historic opportunity. Like, this will never happen again. Like, of course Mm -hmm. you've got to do it. Sandeep Prasanna was two weeks away from beginning a job in the Biden administration. He worked for the Homeland Security Committee and had a reputation as an expert on right-wing extremism. But Sandeep had some trepidations about the offer. I think I, I was a little bit nervous about joining the committee just because it was unknown how much the American people would pay attention to the results, how much Congress would pay attention to the results of the investigation, and whether it would be taken seriously as a kind of bipartisan or nonpartisan effort. His belief that they just might be able to do some good, imbued with a sense of patriotism, won out. I've been thinking about what it means to be an American since I started working on the select committee. Mm-hmm. I have several intersecting identities. I'm the child of immigrants. I'm a gay person. I'm a person of color. I'm an Indian American. And I understand myself in different contexts, in different ways. But ultimately, my life, my happiness, the things that I find rewarding, wouldn't be possible in any other country. He grew up in New Jersey, where he sang classical Indian music and headed to Bangalore every summer to study. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. You know, New Jersey is a diverse state, and it has the highest proportion of Indian Americans of any state in the country. So there was a lot of Indian culture that I was surrounded by in New Jersey. But going from a small town in New Jersey to living in a very, very large and chaotic city in India by myself was definitely a challenge, but really exciting. Samia, too, thought hard before she jumped into her role as a team lead. I think at the very initial, should I take this job, the thought was the 9-11 Commission report. To be part of that would be incredibly, you know, satisfying. Samia reached out to her former colleague, Temadayo Aganga-Williams, a prosecutor based in New York with an expertise in financial crimes. I was not planning to leave the office. I wasn't thinking about that. Uh, One of my former supervisors, Samya Dayananda, sent me a text. It was a Wednesday. Hey, I think you'd be good at this. Are you interested? And of course, I was like, are you joking? Tell me more. Samia was convincing. Temadayo packed up his New York apartment and moved to Washington, D.C. So starting on the committee early, it, it felt really like joining a startup. You need supplies, you need protocols, you need ways for procurement to get, Mm -hmm. you know, all kind of things. So I think 
there was a lot of just building a plane while flying it. Temadayo is the only immigrant on the team who we spoke to. Born in London, he moved to Nigeria and then... The Olympics are just nine days away. Just about everything is ready in Atlanta, including the stadium. Well, I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 1996, um, and the Olympics were going on then. So I think coming to Atlanta at that time truly felt like not only coming to, you know, the great America, but coming to America at a time of that was festive. Mm -hmm. I mean, we came and, you know, it, it felt like a dream. And, yeah. and America, you know, especially when I was growing up, was a place that, that was almost mythic in nature, right? That was spoken about in other countries as, you know, the land of milk and honey. Yeah. So expectations were high for this new country. Temadayo also says he was destined for the law. Yeah, I'm a very stereotypical lawyer in the sense of I've always, I've always loved words, I've always loved a good discussion from as early as I can remember. I mean, my fifth grade yearbook, in that we all had to say what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I had lawyer written down in there. <laughs> Temadayo saw the events of January 6th through the lens of stories America tells about itself and how they don't always meet reality. I think so much of America's own lore about itself um, is that America is different. Yes. And we're not like those countries. Mm -hmm. We're not like those people. And mm -hmm. this is America. And watching uh, all those people attack the Capitol, I think, really burst that bubble mm -hmm. and undercut the idea that America is somehow insulated from being like those people or mm -hmm. those countries. Uh, because we were watching it all for ourselves, basically open hand-to-hand -hand combat yep. at the Capitol. January 6, 2021, wasn't the first time battles erupted at the Capitol. The British set fire to it during the War of 1812. Later acts of violence at the Capitol carried the whiff of white supremacy. In 1856, a pro-slavery lawmaker caned and beat a northerner unconscious. In 1858, a melee among 30 congressmen flared when a southerner grabbed a northerner by the throat. Then two years later, congressmen supporting slavery whipped out pistols and canes to protest the speech of an anti-slavery lawmaker. Racism is ingrained in the Capitol's story, then and now. The Capitol was built by slaves, black men and women who were shackled and dragged across an ocean to provide labor and wealth for white men. It has become a symbol of America. Two Americas, one that believes in white supremacy at any cost, and another that stands for pluralistic, multiracial democracy. Here's Robin. I think people of color naturally are, by definition, so far in the history of this country, have been marginalized, right? They're on the cutting edge of trying to push the society forward, of trying to reimagine it in a way that maybe looks more like themselves, looks more democratic, looks more egalitarian. 
And naturally, there are going to be forces that fight that. Here's Temadayo. And I had not seen yet who, how diverse the committee was going to turn out. But I mean, it's the most diverse professional setting I've ever been in. This was strategic. And for Temadayo, it was almost overwhelming. I thought to my mom, like, look at me, like Nigerian boy mm-hmm. coming come here with my Nigerian name, looking at the Capitol and being like, we're walking to go defend it. And I, I got teary-eyed because yeah. there was something, there was a world that it felt so American, the idea that an immigrant um, can be just as American as anyone else and, and, and could come and defend America. Yes. And to be given the job to say, like, you're on this, you know, this superhero team of people who are going to mm-hmm. come in and defend what's best about America and restore and build that capital. And the beauty about the imagery, too, was that the capital was under some sort of renovation at the time, yeah. too. And there was a way in which, just physically looking at it, it looked like it was just being rebuilt. Temadayo and the other six began to uncover the facts behind January 6th. There would be a fork in the road, whether to stick to the present or dig deeper into our history and what led to the insurrection. In episode two, we are going to go behind the scenes of the January 6th investigation. What did it take? He said, politics is a contact sport, so I know I'm going to get bruised. Thanks for listening to January 6th, An American Story, a special series from Our Body Politic. I'm host and executive producer, Farai Chidea. For this series, Joanne Levine is our executive producer. Morgan Givens is our senior producer. The series was written by Joanne Levine, Morgan Givens, and Farai Chidea. Mary Mathis and Nicole Bodie are our fact checkers. The series was sound designed by Rococo Punch. Jordan Green is our researcher. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. Nina Spensley and Shanta Covington are also executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Our technical director is Mike Garth. Special thanks to the folks at Clean Cuts, including Carter Martin, Emma Shannon, Harry Evans, Archie Moore, Mike Gaylor, Adam Ruhner, Molly Mountain, and Aliza Joffrey. This series is produced with the support of Ruth Ann Harnish. This program is produced with support from the Serdna Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.